0: Welcome to this episode of Heart Failure and Focus. I'm your host, Muthu Variganathan, and this podcast is hosted by Radcliffe Medical Education and is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Please note this podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. Welcome back to this episode of Heart Failure and Focus, and uh, I'm really delighted to have a close, close friend and luminary in cardio metabolism and clinical trials, Dr. Mikhail Kosobor to join us for a special on quality of life in heart failure. He is a clinical trialist professor of medicine at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute, um, really the namesake and uh, perhaps a central hub for quality of life um, uh, instruments uh, worldwide. And um, it's a really delight to have you, Mikhail. Thank you so much.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Perfect. So, Mikhail, we have had many, many discussions over the years on this topic. And so I'm going to dive right into some of the more challenging ones that often come up um, from uh, uh, people in the community. So often uh, people wonder when they look at pivotal randomized clinical trials, once they report, that average differences in quality of life instruments, um, such as the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, are often modest and perhaps um, fall below what we may consider clinically meaningful. And so how do you interpret those data and how do you actually respond um, uh, to those comments? And in your view, do typical guideline-directed medical therapies, um, do they actually improve quality of life? based on those data? Right, well, it's a great question, Muthu.
1: And uh, in fact, uh, comparing uh, the effects of what we consider to be efficacious, uh, even foundational therapies in heart failure um, are sometimes a bit difficult, um, not just because of the usual reasons we give of comparing different medications to one another because the trials are designed differently and the patient populations may be somewhat different as well. But you gotta keep in mind that, you know, back in the days when uh, the initial foundational therapies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, in particular, were developed uh, like beta blockers and Roth blockers in particular, like AIDS inhibitors. Um, you, you know, quality of life uh, or health status measures as we call it today, Uh, were either not routinely used in clinical trials at all, or if they were used, they were not necessarily the same instruments as what we consider to be a gold standard uh, today. Um, And we have several instruments. Uh, You mentioned KCCQ, which I think now has become the gold standard. There is also Minnesota living with heart failure, and they do differ. Um, uh, while they're both good at evaluating health data at baseline, there are quite a few differences between them if you look at how responsive they are to clinical change over time, for example, which is a critical question, of course, in heart failure trials. So, so there are some challenges in comparing uh, different medications, uh, if you will, in, in terms of the effect on uh, quality of life instruments or health data instruments. With all of those limitations acknowledged... Um, I think uh, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, They're definitely not all the same. While they may have comparable effects on reducing cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations in some cases, or at least in the same ballpark, Um, they're not uh, all the same when it comes to effects on symptoms, physical uh, function, quality of life. And of course, those outcomes are very important. They're very important to patients and also clinicians. Ultimately, that's why patients come in to see us, right? They come in to see us because they're not feeling well and they want to feel better. Um, And uh, actually, uh, for some classes of medications, there is no compelling data that they improve, at least in the short term, quality of life at all. Uh, Probably a great example of that would be beta blockers. I mean, they're clearly um, fantastic medications for reducing death and hospitalizations, but there isn't really any compelling data that quality of life improves. Uh in patients with heart failure with reduced AF and heart failure with preserved AF, uh, withdrawal of beta blockers actually makes people feel better. Uh so um there are definitely differences between them and they're not all the same, no question about it. That's kind of the first answer to your question. The second part, uh which is um you know what uh do we actually uh uh, how do we use those numbers, and why is it that in many trials uh, the numerical differences between the two interventions, drug and placebo, for example, uh, or drug and active comparator, are relatively, uh, what's viewed as relatively modest and below the threshold, 5 point threshold for you know clinically meaningful change. And, and I think here it's critically important to understand that the 5-point clinically meaningful difference Uh, is really not supposed to be applied uh, when we look at the differences between large populations of patients. Of course, the way we do trials is there are thousands and thousands of patients, and we look at averages across those populations of patients. And uh, while it's important to understand if the drug is better than placebo active comparator, when we look at these mean differences, those mean differences across thousands of patients don't really tell the true story of what the effect of this medication is on health data. What you really need to look at is on an individual patient basis, what happens. An individual patient basis at five point threshold is meaningful, but on population level, it really isn't. So I personally think you know a more important or more uh, insightful way of looking at the data is to try to understand uh, what proportion of patients had small, moderate, and large improvements and what proportion of patients got worse instead of better uh, on the active intervention versus a comparator. And that I think tells you uh, really Uh, a better story. Um, I mean, i give you just one example, of course, you know, partial to SGLT2 inhibitors because it was uh, quite heavily involved in that uh, whole story. But, you know, we did a trial uh, called preserved HF in patients with heartfelt and preserved ejection fraction with dapagliflozin versus placebo, uh, dapagliflozin, of course, being one of the SGLT2 inhibitors. And we found that uh, there was more than double the proportion of patients treated with loads and that's in patients with heart failure and mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction. More than double uh, the proportion of those patients had very large improvements in health status uh, in KCCQ as compared to those treated with placebo. So that, I think, is the the kind of information that want to look at when I try to understand are these medications really effective in improving how patients feel and what they're able to do.
0: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant overview and congratulations on those trials. I think you've pioneered many of the trials that have set the stage for application of quality of life in heart failure trials. Um, the you know, you talked about clinically meaningful. and so when we when we um, reference mortality hospitalization outcomes, we often talk about effect sizes in the order of 15, 20, 30 percent reductions in those um, relative reductions in those events. And in general, these therapies align in, in, um, in producing those effects at the population level. How do you think about clinically meaningful differences in quality of life or other measures of health status? Um, and how is, you know, let's say, let's take the uh, Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, as you mentioned, it's really become and risen to the goal as a gold standard. Um, how is five points selected? Why was that selected as meaningful to patients?
1: Right. Well, uh, as uh, you well know, the person who actually developed the cancer cardiomyopathy questionnaire who's a good friend and colleague of mine right here at my institution, Central for American Heart Institute, John John Um, John and his colleagues did a very thorough evaluation of this where they actually measured KCCQ serially, uh, and they also looked at serial changes uh, in patient's clinical status. And what they try to do is correlate again on individual patient basis. Really try to correlate and understand what change on an individual patient basis in KCCQ correlated with what the clinicians would consider to be a meaningful change, um, and uh, in, in patients' uh, overall clinical status, right? So, uh, and and that's that's really where these data come from, um, uh, and and that's why uh, you know what I mentioned earlier, which is. You know, it's not, you know, the way it was developed, the way that clinical meaningful change was generated uh, was not necessarily intended uh, to be viewed as a threshold for determining effectiveness in clinical trials. Uh, I think it makes sense when you do this responder analysis, we look at proportion of patients that get worse and got better. Uh, that's where the threshold, again, makes sense. But when you look at mean differences across populations... Um, it's it's a lot less uh, meaningful because there is so much. Of course, as you know, when you look at thousands of patients, there is so much variability that happens. The other point that I think is really important is uh, remember the uh, when we do clinical trials of patients with heart failure, uh, outcome trials in particular. You know, patients are being selected based on their risk of clinical events and uh, the predictors of those clinical events because these tend to be event-driven trials, right? So we look at Various clinical indicators, and probably one of the uh, best predictors uh, that we use, uh, most reliable ones, is natural reacoptage, to right? Because you kind of can dial up your bnp or dial it down, depending on what kind of event rate you want. But what's important to keep in mind that while there is a correlation between BNP and KCCQ, for example, is um, if you're selecting patients based on heterotic peptide, and you're saying we're going to only take people that have an OHA class two and class three, which is fine, or, or you know, class two and above, is the correlation between antiproBNP and even NOHA N- class in KCQ is not perfect by far. And uh, what ends up happening, if you look at these large outcome trials, uh, the cancer carmopathy questionnaire scores tend to be relatively high, which means patients, at least the way they're telling us from their perspective, uh, are really just mildly to moderately symptomatic. And just as it would be difficult to show a large benefit when you're looking at patients at very low risk for events in an event-driven trial, right, it's more difficult to show a clinical benefit on health status on quality of life, when you take patients that only moderate to moderately symptomatic. And that, I think I, I mentioned the PRESERVE trial before, but you know, preserves had KCQ as a primary endpoint. And uh, the KCQ in the trial was quite a bit lower than what you see in outcome trials, and the benefit was much larger. Now, that makes logical sense, but uh, that's another thing, which I think it, it kind of gets missed when people look at this result. They say, well, you know, there's two and a half points or three point difference between the groups. But, of course, keep in mind that if you take patients that had really poor health status to begin with, they will have a larger improvement. Another example of trials, again, going back to SGLT2 inhibitors, are patients who are hospitalized, who have very poor health status, You know, we see numerically larger effect sizes in KCQ and those trials than we do in uh, chronic ambulatory kind of, quote-unquote, stable. I don't like the term stable heart failure, because there's no such thing. But, you know, they're, they're more stable than hospitalized patients, let's put it that way.
0: Yes, critical, critical points. I think the, um, the main, main takeaway there is that Many of these trials are designed for clinical events and not quality of life, and so um, perhaps underestimate the uh, the benefits on quality of life in general. And so as a kind of a quick follow-up on that concept, really our guidelines, our regulatory uh, labeling is shaped around, largely around clinical events, and often actually specifies um, Clinical events that may be prevented with use of a given in, uh, uh, therapy, whether a drug or device, and often quality of life or health status, even symptoms, are either not mentioned or perhaps embedded in the um, in the supportive text of these of these documents. And so, how do you foresee, you know, in in clinical decision making and in in practice, of course, we want all these aligned. We want therapies that improve clinical outcomes and um, uh, such as uh, quality of life and also hospitalizations mortality outcomes. But in certain circumstances, there is some discordance or at least outsized benefits on quality of life and health status. And so how do you foresee um the future of guideline development? And Do you see a role for guidelines to actually make recommendations on therapies that actually improve health status, um, but may not have a um, perhaps uh, important or measurable impact on hospitalizations or mortality? No,
1: fantastic question, and I'll start by saying there's actually a incredibly insightful study, and it's one of several, but I think it's one perhaps that makes that point as clear as possible, which is when you actually ask the patient, what's more important to you patients with heart failure what's more important to you um and um y- you know if you were to uh this actually the study was done on patients with heart failure where they were discussing with the patients the trade-offs of mitral valve surgery if they had significant mitral regurgitation, and the upside of potentially improving their symptoms over time by having the surgery versus the risk of surgery which includes potential risk of dying or having bleeding complications and things like that. And what was incredibly insightful from that study is that there clearly was a cadre of patients that would uh, trade uh, longer survival for a better quality of life. In fact, uh, they were willing to accept increase in mortality due to surgery uh, in north of 9%, you know, as long as, as they could... Um, have a better uh, uh, symptoms, uh, improvement in symptoms, you know, physical function, quality of life. Uh, And in fact, when you account for patients' preferences on uh, their health status, uh, the whole, uh, you know, conversation about uh, hospitalization for heart failure actually, you know, became uh, not meaningful anymore. I mean, you know, it was really all driven, the whole reduction hospitalization from patient standpoint was driven by improvement in symptoms. So the bottom line is, patients. Many of our patients value how they feel and what they're able to do more so than how long they live. Uh, so the patients clearly think it's super important. Um, the regulators. I know you mentioned the regulators. You know they clearly have come around, and now formal now Certainly, the US FDA has formal acknowledged that assessments of patients' health status and function are super important, and in fact, under certain circumstances, uh, may be considered as approvable endpoints. Uh, and KCQ has actually been qualified as a potentially a probable endpoint in patients with heart failure. Uh, so uh, obviously, you know, it needs to be in the context also of what happens with clinical events. In other words, these interventions that improve health status you know, shouldn't have a negative impact on survival and hospitalization, but it's by itself, in its own right, an approvable and important endpoint. Now, when it comes to guidelines and clinical practice, I think that's where the gaps are. Um, The the guidelines, unfortunately, haven't come nearly as far. And I think, uh, in fact, uh, some guideline developers will uh, clearly acknowledge that, you know, an outcome like mortality uh, is still more important than anything else uh, and drives a lot of the decision making. Um, but, But I think uh you know the guideline developers, because the guidelines are so important in driving clinical practice, uh, uh really need to uh not just uh kind of mention uh, quality of life measures somewhere on page 250 uh of the document, but actually base the recommendations uh in part uh on what happens to that important outcome because it's so critical patients. And we all say we, you know, we obviously here to care of patients. So that, that's got to have influence. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a hypothetical example. Let's say a drug A and drug B, um, you know, uh, both uh, have, uh, you know, minimal impact on mortality. Um, they both significantly in a meaningful way reduce heart failure hospitalizations. Uh, but one uh, has a much larger impact on patients' uh, symptoms and quality of life. And the other one uh, is not nearly as uh, impactful. You you know, I would think it'd be natural uh, for the guidelines to make a differentiation between the two because the triple goal of care is to reduce death, prevent hospitalization for quality of life. So all of those three need to be considered. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, I would say ATCHA HFSA guidelines uh, have come so far a little bit further And, you know, starting to acknowledge this uh, in a discussion and document, European guidelines haven't yet. It's still really all based on NYHA class. And it's very, very clear. While NYHA is really excellent tool for predicting prognosis at baseline, it's not nearly as responsive to clinical change as KCCQ, for example. And of course, that's from a physician perspective, not patient perspective. So I think the guidelines have a long way to go. And I think that the, the momentum is definitely in that direction, but it's not quite there yet. Clinical practice is another kind of frontier where we still have a lot of uh, work to do, to be honest. Um, it's uh, I think KCQ can be incredibly useful in clinical practice. And there are a number of centers that are trying to implement it. Uh, in everyday care, uh, but it certainly hasn't become uh, kind of a household item, if you will, uh, in our daily month of patients with heart failure.
0: Yeah, fully, fully agree, Mikhail. And and um, we have about a minute left, and I, I want to borrow your wealth of experience in in running trials um, and, and employing uh, these instruments, and so. Many um of the listeners are going to be junior investigators or early career investigators, um, embarking on this journey, and often in an era when we're trying to streamline CRFs and um, uh, it may be daunting to employ or incorporate a um a multi uh, uh a multi question um instrument like the KCCQ. And so, what is your response to that? And and um. You have clearly been very effective at embedding these instruments in trials and so can it be done in a streamlined manner in an efficient manner that is also uh cost efficient for for trials and for um, uh, society
1: right well um I, I think the simple answer to this is that um you know as collecting any data point uh, involves a certain amount of um, you know, investment that needs to be made uh, and you, of course, want to make sure the data you're capturing is good quality data so you want to be consistent in how you collect it. With all that acknowledged, I think uh, first of all, patients appreciate being asked how they feel. Uh, there's actually been a formal study uh, to show that uh, when KCCQ is embedded in clinical practice not in the clinical trial setting uh, patients feel like they're more engaged and they especially appreciate the discussion about the KCCQ results with their clinicians and they feel like that makes a meaningful difference in their management. Um, and so uh, same is true in the clinical trial. Patients actually, as long as you make it user-friendly and easy for them, you know, they and it's not a you know, huge hassle from a technology standpoint, you know, they actually appreciate being asked. So I would say, you know, just very quickly, um, you know, there is a wealth of different ways in which cases can be collected. I mean, that's the beauty of the tool is that uh, it can be collected on paper. It can be collected on a tablet. It can be collected on a website. Uh, it can be collected through the app. Um, and it can be collected completely remote. Um, so John Spurtis uh, led this trial recently called Chief HF. I was involved in that as well. Uh, that was done in the middle of the pandemic. Actually, just so happened. It was planned before the pandemic. But it just so happened that, it's, that it was launched the week of the pandemic declaration. And uh, when all of the other heart failure trials came to a screeching halt, but we were able to recruit the trial at a higher rate than your know, average rate, despite the pandemic, uh, fully remote with the primary outcome of KCQ that was collected through the app. So uh, that's another beauty of the tool is that it just, you know, you don't even have to see the patient you know, at the center, at the uh, clinical side or trial side in order to be able to collect it. So, um, And, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, most patients have the smart devices and, you know, the app actually works incredibly well. The last thing I will say is that John and his group also have done a lot of work in trying to simplify KCQ. There is now what's called the KCQ12, uh, which has uh, 12 questions instead of the 23 standard KCQ questionnaire. So, you know, as everything else, things will evolve and become simpler, and easier to implement. But... Um, I think, um, you know, we usually don't uh, bat an eyelid, you know, doing things like echocardiograms or sending patients to get blood work done for natural peptides. Uh, but, uh, and this is actually, I think, in the spectrum of things we're doing clinical trials is relatively straightforward.
0: Oh, this was such a delight of a conversation. Uh, thank you, Mikhail, for allowing us to borrow your time, expertise, um, and in-depth Uh, experience with uh, quality of life and heart failure. And thank you all for listening to this episode of um, Heart Failure in Focus. We look forward to sharing uh, with you the next episodes.
1: Always a pleasure.